Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. Give ear to the reading of God's Word today. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Uh, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away? Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, here at uh, the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16, uh, we come to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection is uh, from the dead is one of the most important events um, in, in all of history, it's one of the most important truths in all of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, as we read earlier today, says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 4, that the fact that Christ was, was, quote, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures was one of the things, along with his death for our sins and his burial, that, that he taught to the church at Corinth that was, quote, of first importance. You know, Paul, as we've seen before, Paul taught the whole counsel of God, as he said in the book of Acts. But among the whole counsel of God, there were things that stood out, you know, head and shoulders above the rest. And those things were all about Christ, his death on the cross for our sins, his burial, as we saw last uh, a couple weeks ago, and his resurrection from the dead. Those were of first importance. Why, why is the resurrection of Christ so important? Why is it of first importance? Importance. Paul says in Romans uh, 1 4 that it was by Christ's resurrection from the dead on the third day that he was, quote, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. It was the proof of who he was. It was the proof that the price had been paid for our justification. Romans 4 25, Paul says there that Christ was raised for our justification. So it wasn't just his death. As important as his death on the cross for our sins is, his resurrection is just as important. He says in that, that chapter we read earlier in the service, 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen, that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And not only that again, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. A dead Savior who stays dead saves no one. In other words, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no gospel. No gospel without the resurrection. A dead Savior saves no one. Those are just a few of the reasons why Christ's resurrection is of first importance, as Paul says there in that chapter. And so the truth of Christ's resurrection and the implications of that resurrection uh, must be preached and taught faithfully in the church it's not an overstatement to say that the truth of his resurrection and the implications of it cannot be emphasized too much or repeated too often. That doesn't mean every sermon has to sound like Easter Sunday, but we, we can't emphasize it enough. We can't talk about Christ's death 
and resurrection enough. We need to hear about these things much more often uh, than once a year at Easter. We need to hear it. I mean, everything in the New Testament is really rooted in Christ's death and resurrection. All roads kind of lead to those things and from those things. Well, the first thing that we're going to see in our text this morning from verses 1 through 8, the first thing that Mark tells us about is about these women came to Jesus' empty tomb on that that first Easter Sunday morning. In verses 1 to 2, look there, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now you might know uh, in the verses prior to this in Mark 15, uh, he tells us there that Joseph of Arimathea made haste to give the Lord Jesus a proper burial. Why? Because it was, verse 42, the day before the Sabbath or the day of preparation. In other words, you know, when the Sabbath came, Saturday, you couldn't work. So burying the dead sounds like a lot of work. And so he had to get it done on that Friday night before the Sabbath came to pass. And so even now here we find these women uh, waiting for the Sabbath to be passed. Why? So that they could come and anoint his, his body or anoint him. They wanted to give him a, a proper anointing uh, for, for his burial. That It was in such a haste of getting him in the tomb on Friday that it couldn't be done. And so they were going to kind of finish the job. They loved Jesus so much that you can imagine how unpleasant a job like that would be. And yet they didn't sleep in. They didn't wait and take, take their sweet time. It was like they, if they didn't have watches back then, but it was as if the minute they knew it was lawful to go do it, that they weren't going to be breaking the Sabbath. They were going to go and do that for their Lord. And, and they went there early, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen. That's how much they loved Jesus Christ. They started off as early as they could, as early as was permissible. Now, in some ways, the actions of Mary, Mary, and Salome uh, you know, may, may strike us as kind of odd. Remember, they, they watched closely, Mark says, from a distance, his crucifixion, his death. They even saw where he was buried. And that was an important detail for Mark to let us know about. But, you know, they, they, they went to the tomb and it didn't seem like they were anticipating the resurrection, were they? We might have expected, you know, they, they were told about it. Jesus told them this was what was going to happen. And yet they show up at the tomb looking to anoint uh, what they thought was going to be what they found was they thought they were going to find his body in the tomb. They were more worried about who was going to roll the stone away. They weren't, ex- they weren't expecting his, his resurrection. You'd think we might have expected them to show up early, you know, with, on pins and needles kind of thing, expecting the resurrection. And that's why they got there early, but no, they got there early to anoint his, his body. And, and lest we give them too much trouble, where were the disciples? They weren't even here yet. They were still probably off in Galilee or somewhere hiding. At least the women showed up, even if they weren't expecting the right thing. So in, in, instead of finding them coming to the tomb to anoint his body, uh, you know that, that's what we find. Instead of them coming to, to see his resurrection. In his book, Knowing Christ, Mark Jones writes this. He says, In the Gospel of Mark, Christ makes three explicit predictions of his death and resurrection. These forecasts are so clear that they leave us wondering why the disciples were not waiting outside the tomb on Sunday morning to greet their triumphant Savior. For example, he plainly told them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again, Mark 8.31. 
And those, those three times that he foretold these events were in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10. Three consecutive chapters Jesus told the disciples, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise again the third day. He told them ahead of time, and yet it doesn't seem as if that message penetrated their minds and hearts to the point where they believed and expected that to happen. Well, there was not going to be an anointing of Jesus' body this day when the women showed up, and there didn't really need to be. Uh, For he was already arisen from the dead, as the young man dressed in white was going to tell them in verse 6. But you might remember that a couple chapters earlier than this, his body was already anointed for burial. Mark 14.3 tells us about a woman that came to Jesus while he was dining at the home of Simon the leper. Remember what she did? She broke a very costly jar or flask, of alabaster flask of, of ointment of pure nard. It was very expensive. It was kind of a perfumed ointment and she poured the contents all over Jesus's head. You know, people many commentators believe that, that that flask or that jar was kind of her nest egg. You know, we have savings accounts and bonds and whatnot. This was her retirement, you could say. The things she could sell later on for a great price. And what does she do? She loves Jesus so much she breaks it and pours it all over his head. And the people at the at the party or whatever it was were outraged. Even says that they scolded her for it. They were angry about it. They they made excuses. Oh, you could have fed the poor with it. You could have done all these good things with the money if you sold it. And yet, this is what Jesus says in Mark fourteen six through nine. It says, "But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. Here it is." She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. The Lord made sure that that was taken care of before Jesus even went to the cross because he knew there wasn't going to be time to do it before he was buried. It says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So there wasn't going to be time to anoint his body before before uh, burial after he died on the cross and so the Lord and his providence saw to it that this woman whom we don't know who it was took care of that and her name her her action is is uh, proclaimed in her honor in memory of her throughout the whole world everywhere the gospel of Mark is preached and taught well the next thing we see here is the the young man the angel at the empty tomb now, this young man as Mark calls him dressed in a white robe we know from Matthew 28.2 that this was an angel of the Lord. Uh, the other Gospels mention, uh, one of them says that there were two of them at the tomb. Mark only mentions the one. Now when Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and Salome got to the tomb, remember what they were asking themselves? Who's going to roll away the stone? Like, uh, you know, very often uh, people will say that uh, the stone was impossible to move. That it, you know, I've heard some estimates say it was like two tons. Um, I think this text should get us to slow our roll on that just a little bit. Uh, the expectation was that the stone could be moved, but these women weren't going to be able to do it. One person certainly couldn't do it. We don't know how many men would, it would take to move it. But their expectation was that someone, they, they could find someone to be able to move it back. It just wouldn't be very easy to do. It was quite, it was quite heavy. But what happened when they got there? What did they find when they got to the tomb? Their question was answered. They didn't have to find somebody. Somebody had already rolled the stone back. In verses 4 to 5, Mark says, Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And he adds, It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed 
in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You know, it, it shouldn't be a shock to us that they were alarmed. They see one man, young man, sitting there inside the tomb, uh, and it, it probably didn't didn't wasn't lost upon them that uh, this young man probably had something to do with that stone being moved. And humanly speaking, he shouldn't have been able to move it. We don't know what he looked like other than the way he was dressed and looked like a young man. But there was some power going on here that they they certainly had to recognize. It. So what did they? They looked up as they were coming to the tomb, and they stopped and they stared. They couldn't believe their own eyes, what their eyes were telling them, because that stone, Mark says, was very large. And notice it's a little little detail, but it wasn't just rolled away. Remember what they asked, what they were asking themselves? They wondered who was going to roll the stone away for them. It was rolled not just away, it was rolled back. Now, people think that these kinds of tombs back in, in uh, Israel in the first century uh, that there was a a lot of times an expensive tomb had instead of just a big boulder, it was a, a kind of a, a stone or a rock that was carved into a into a disc that would fit in front of the entrance, and it would be there would be a groove like a track that when they would release it, it would roll down into the front of the tomb and and kind of seal it. And there was no it would be very difficult to to move this thing out of the way to get in. It would certainly be almost impossible to roll it all the way back up this little incline in the groove to where it was set before the tomb was was closed and sealed. When they walked up, the stone was rolled back, not just away. It was rolled all the way back up. And moving such a, whole, a large, heavy stone, you know, moving it was one thing. Moving it enough that they could get in and do what they were going to do would have been pretty hard in and of itself. Rolling it all the way back, that would have taken quite a bit of, of power to do. And so you can see why they might be alarmed when they showed up and saw this having taken place. Well, that brings us to the third thing that Mark shows us in the text, and that's the message of that angel that was in the tomb, the message of the angel. And that's in verses 6 through 7. Mark says, And he, this young man, this angel, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the first thing he tells him is not to be alarmed or astonished. You know, kind of fear not is what angels always seem to have to tell people because we're, we would naturally be afraid of them if we were to see them. Now, the, the word that Mark uses here, it really indicates more of a, a sense of shock or astonishment than it does fear. Fear might have been a part of it, but the main thing is shock. They were stunned at what they saw. They were astonished at what they saw. It may have been mixed with a little bit of fear, but they were mainly shocked. And and they, what does he say? He says, don't be shocked. Don't be astonished. They, they should not have been astonished because they should have been expecting that Jesus was going to rise from the grave. The angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. I mean, he's telling them, I, I know who you're here to see, but this is not the place you should be looking for him. Right? Uh, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. They had the right idea in seeking Jesus. So far, so good. But uh, the, the, they were seeking the one who was crucified, but were looking for Jesus in the wrong place. Luke 24, 5 says they were seeking the living among the dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? You're right to seek him, but this isn't the kind of place you should be seeking your Savior. Now, the next words of the angel here are some of the greatest words ever to be uttered in all of history. He has risen. He is not here. 
as if to emphasize for them the truth of what he was saying. What does he say? See the place where they laid him? You don't believe me? Look. Here's where they laid him. Here's where he was placed. He's not here anymore. He's out of the grave and he has risen. You know, we, every Easter we say he is risen. And what do we say after that? He is risen indeed. That's the truth that this angel got to tell those women. We, we proclaim that every Easter Sunday. We really proclaim it every Sunday. We, we worship on Sundays. Why? Why do we not worship on Saturdays? Because Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week. It was such a change that the church from the first century on started meeting on on Sundays. Now, that angelic messenger from God gives these women the honor of passing along a message to the disciples. You know, you, you'd think if you were the angel, you might say, I'll go tell them. You know, now I told you, now I'm going to go tell the disciples. No, he gives them the honor. He says, you go and tell. That's the message of Mark in some ways. Go and tell. Go and tell the disciples and Peter... Uh, that he is going, he, that's Jesus, is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, I don't know if you noticed as we were reading it, but he singles out Peter. You know, and Peter kind of singled himself out, didn't he? Remember Jesus in, in you know, a couple chapters before, so they were all going to fall away. And, and Peter said, not me, I'm paraphrasing. Even if these jokers fall away, I'm not going to. If I have to die with you, I'm not going to do that. And Jesus said, you know, I tell you the truth, before the, the rooster crows twice, you're going to die, deny me three times. So Peter singled himself out, and Peter had the greater fall. Remember, he tried to hang in there, and then the little servant girl by the fire recognized him and called him out, and Peter denied, just like Jesus said, denied him three times uh, before that rooster crowed twice. Think about what a great mercy this is. What this was towards Peter. You know, the angel could have said, tell the disciples, but he says, make sure you include Peter. Maybe Peter wasn't with the, with, with the other disciples. Maybe he considered himself so far gone that he cut himself off and was somewhere somewhere by himself. We don't know. But the angel makes sure that she tells Peter in particular that, that he was going ahead of them to Galilee and they, including Peter, were going to see Jesus again alive and well. What a great mercy that was to Peter. Think about how great his joy must have been at hearing that. You think Peter expected that? You think Peter, even if he was to hear of the resurrection, do you think Peter expected Jesus to include him and to call him back and to, and to accept him, even though he denied him three times? But he does. He doesn't turn his back on on Peter or any of his disciples. It says, notice the angels, uh, you know, they said this was just as he told you. Again, you should have expected this to be the case. Verse 7, the disciples should have been expecting the resurrection of Christ uh, back when he predicted they would fall away, in fact, in that same passage, what does he say in Mark fourteen twenty-seven to 28? This is when he's telling Peter, you're going to fall away, you're going to deny me. Right before that, he says, you will all fall away, for it, is, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And here it is. But after I am raised up, hint, you know, ding, 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 after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What a mercy that that is to the, to, the, to the disciples. He says, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to turn your backs on me, and I'm going to die. But after I'm raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. He tells them, here's where you're going to see me. I'm going to get there ahead of you, and you're going to see me again, even though you turned your backs on me. Great mercy that Jesus shows to, to his disciples and to us today. 
So he prophesied to them beforehand of his death and resurrection multiple times and even promised them that although they were going to turn their backs on him in his darkest hour, which he would do for our salvation, uh, that he wasn't going to abandon them. They were going to see Jesus again. And so what did the women do? How did they respond to this commission to go and tell the disciples and Peter? Verse 80 says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for fear and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They didn't just run, they fled. They couldn't get away from the tomb fast enough. I think the reaction of the women in our text is kind of one of those little details that I think demonstrates again for us the the truth and trustworthiness of Mark's account as being scripture. It kind of has that strange ring of truth to it that that we often find in scripture that, you know, if we were going to write the Bible, if we were going to make a conspiracy and get together and write the Bible and make up the gospel, we wouldn't have written it this way. We wouldn't have the disciples and the women not expecting his resurrection. We would have made it, of course he's going to rise from the grave and they're waiting for him to come out of the grave. And we certainly wouldn't have the women running away from the tomb, shaking and trembling and not knowing what to say and not telling anyone uh, you know, what, what they had heard about. You know, the rest of the chapter, which we'll look at in a couple Sundays, the rest of, of Mark 16 has that same ring of truth to it. Because what do you find in the rest of the chapter? The disciples themselves refuse to believe he's raised. They hear it, they don't go, of course, I knew it all along. They, they, they refuse to believe the women. There's no way that happened. We saw him die, he's in the grave, the jig is up, all is lost, and yet Jesus comes to them and shows himself alive in many ways. Well, what are you and I to take from all of this? What's the application of this, this text about Christ's resurrection for us? The first thing I think is to be assured of the truth of Scripture, and the good news of the gospel that our Lord Jesus Christ lives. He has risen from the dead. Now, I don't know if you think about this, but you may you may come to see this more and more in our culture in our day, but we believe some strange things. Your, or your neighbors, your unbelieving neighbors and family and friends, think you believe some very strange things because we believe someone rose from the grave. That doesn't normally happen. We believe Jesus died and rose again on the third day. That sounds strange to the world's ears, but that, that should be music to our ears, that we serve a living, a living Savior. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism offers, I think, a helpful, a brief little snapshot of the importance and meaning of the resurrection of Christ for us, as well as the benefits of Christ's resurrection that are ours if we're in Christ. Uh, Heidelberg question 45 says, What does the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, it says, answer first, By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us partakers of of that righteousness which he has purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. So three things, right? There's more than this, but at least three things. The first benefit of Christ's resurrection for us is that because he overcame death, He now makes us partakers of all that he purchased for us by his death, even righteousness and justification. In other words, Jesus earned, we sang a song earlier in in the service, how vast the benefits divine. Uh, You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 talks about that he's blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he lists a whole bunch of them. The whole first part of the chapter, the first 14 verses, this big run-on sentence by Paul is a listing 
a brief listing of all these benefits we have in Christ, things we should think about. Well, those things were purchased for us by his death on the cross for us. And his resurrection means that we share in those things. Without his resurrection, we don't have any of those things Paul lists in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. But because he rose from the grave, he makes us partakers of all that he earned in our place by his death. The second benefit of Christ's resurrection from the dead is that we are now raised with him in the power of that resurrection to a new life. We are raised with him in the power of a new life. This is the new birth. Being born again, new life from the dead. That, that's, that's what he has earned in our place by his death and resurrection. We share now, if you're a believer in Christ, you share in Christ's resurrection by your new birth. The new life that you have in Christ. So justification, sanctification is the second thing. The reign of sin over us is now broken, and we are enabled more and more, as the Shorter Catechism says, to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's that's because of Christ's resurrection. You you live in the Spirit of God, in the resurrection power of Christ. The same power that raised him up from the dead is now at work in you who believe, Paul says. That's what the Heidelberg is talking about here. The third benefit of Christ's resurrection that the Heidelberg says is that lastly, quote, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Uh, because he lives, we not only have new spiritual life, but because he lives, we also have a sure pledge or guarantee of our own blessed resurrection. Because he is raised, you too, if you are in Christ, will be raised in glory on that last day. Body and soul. Jesus died not just for your soul, but for your body as well. Death no longer has the last word over a believer in Christ. In fact, Christ has, as Paul says, removed the sting of death for all who are united to him by faith. And as we saw in our scripture reading earlier in the service, you know, Paul closes out that whole chapter on, on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 with these words. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We, we probably don't, wouldn't think of it that way. We probably, I would never think of that myself. I would never think, oh, because Jesus' resurrection, that means I should, you know, be willing to work for the Lord, abounding in good works in the name of Christ. But because of the resurrection of Jesus and the sure hope of your own future resurrection and glory, your labor is not in vain if you are serving the Lord. Whatever it is you're doing in the Lord's name, serving Christ, it's not in vain. And why is that? Because Christ rose from the grave and you will Two, our work in his name is not wasted if you're in Christ. And it's because of the resurrection. Neither death nor the passage of time can undo the good work that you do in Christ's name. The work that he does by his spirit through you. That's because of his resurrection. It's, it's a foreshadowing of the new heavens and new earth, the new creation that has already been started by the resurrection of Christ. None of your work in Christ People might not notice it. You might do many things in the name of Christ that, that the world doesn't notice. They don't make the papers. That it might get mocked. None of it's wasted. No martyr who, who, who was, you know, is suffered and killed for the faith, their lives aren't wasted. Their service, their witness for Christ is not wasted. Why? Because of the resurrection from the dead. And so we who are believers in Christ have every reason, as Paul says, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. Let's, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We know that we just scratched the surface barely of what all of what that means for us. Uh, Lord, we know that we don't uh, quickly understand these things. We ask that you would work in us by your Spirit, that you would teach us by your Word and by the work of your Spirit, that we might have a better understanding of how important Christ's resurrection from the dead is. We might understand why it's important, that we might live in light of it. Lord, we ask that you would transform our lives by uh, by the death and resurrection of your Son and by the knowledge of that. Work in us again by your Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Change us by your Spirit. Help us to live in such a way as, as Paul says there. Make us steadfast and movable and, and always abounding in the work uh, of the Lord. Use us and glorify the name of Christ. We pray that, uh, again, as we always do, if there's anybody here that does not yet know the hope of, of salvation in Christ and is still in their sins, that you might open their eyes even today. Give them grace to, to look to him and live, have life abundant and eternal, that they might have the sure hope of their resurrection and they, they too might learn the rest of their days to serve you, abounding in the work of the Lord. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.